The content of this podcast is provided as general informational purposes only. It is not intended for, nor should it be used to replace professional behavior intervention and advice. This is Sissy. And this is Susan. And we are Function Junction. Behavior matters. What behavioral matters are we going to talk about today, Sissy? Well, I would like to talk about children learning to understand things. And sometimes in ABA, we talk about something being a discriminative stimulus. And so... So a discriminative stimulus is depicted kind of backwards. So when you write discriminative stimulus, you really write S with a superscript D. And the reason for that is because there are other kinds of stimuli that we won't talk about today. But for example, there are other kinds of stimuli that we represent with an S and a letter or a shape as a superscript. So a discriminative stimulus is really what we refer to in classrooms and in clinics as the SD, right? And the SD is the first sign that learning should occur, right? And it's really different than a prompt. It's really more oftentimes as a cue. So the example that I always give is that if you and I are driving in my car and we're chatting and I see there's a traffic light and it's yellow, what should I do or what, yeah, what should I do? You should slow down. A lot of people say speed up, but really I should (laughs) slow down. Now, if I don't see the yellow light, so that would be the SD for me to slow down. Then you say, Susan, there's a yellow light. That's a prompt. And then I either slow down or I speed up. Um, another easy example for people is same, same kind of example, but driving in the car and there's a stop sign and I'm driving and I don't see the stop sign, which is my cue to stop um, or my SD to stop. And then you say, Susan, there's a stop sign that becomes a prompt. So the SD is really the first sign that learning should occur. Right. So maybe that's an easy for our learners, our listeners to remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Can they discriminate the stimulus? That's kind of how I think right. of it too, but yes. Um, so if the doorbell rings, I'm not going to answer my phone. Correct. You're going to go to your door because it's under stimulus control. <laughs> you know that the doorbell means there's someone at your door. Yes. So I was going to tell kind of a funny story. This is a true story. I was doing an in-home training evaluation because in Texas, we have that wonderful autism supplement that no other state has. And on it is in-home training and parent training along with nine other supplemental um, services. So I was in a family's home and um, it was a young girl in middle school and she really did pick up the phone anytime she walked by her heart. And it was back when we had wall phones, you know, I'm dating myself. And so every time she would walk by the phone, she would pick it up and go, hello. And no one would be there and she'd put it down. And I I always thought that was so funny and I'll never forget it because I don't know why that happened. You know, I don't know if maybe she answered the phone one time and someone was really there and now she just thinks that, but you know, that's kind of a good example of not being under stimulus control, right? Because the stimulus should be the phone ringing for you to pick up the phone. So I always think about that girl. She was such a neat little girl. Um, Anyway, so I am sure you have a story about that. Do you? I do. I have a couple of things that illustrate that. One is from a very long time ago when I first started in the schools and I was a speech therapist. 
and I worked with some wonderful, wonderful PPCD teachers who were great with the kids and taught the children all kinds of things, always thinking, where do they need next? What do they need next? There was a young man, I'll call him Dwight, and Dwight was on the spectrum for sure. He had autism and it was pretty severe. He didn't say any words. He really didn't use any sounds to communicate. Everything that he knew had been taught to him very carefully. So uh, Dwight's teacher wanted him to be as independent as possible. When it was time for lunch, we would go to the lunchroom. He would eat his lunch. We were on a campus that didn't have a cafeteria. So the food was brought in and it was brought in on the trays. And so those trays were disposable. The teacher taught him to carry his tray to the trash, you know, be independent that way, throw his trash away. Love that. And he did that every day. He, um, every day he would finish his lunch, take his tray over, drop it in the trash. One day he got up, walked over to the trash, well, where the trash can should be and dropped his tray. And we all looked at one another like, what just happened? It took us a couple of beats, <laughs> right? It took us a couple of beats to realize, oh, someone moved the trash can. Right. So for him, the stimulus that he was discriminating, the discriminative stimulus was the place, not the trash can. You know, and that's so funny. And think about what people would do if that happened and, and you weren't the teacher or you weren't there. It would be like, he just threw his tray on the ground. Oh my gosh, what is wrong with him? He just threw his tray on the ground, you know, instead of it being, he threw it where he usually throws it every day, you know? So, yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I was a brand new person. It was really all of us together looked to one another and said, oh, I think, I think he's just putting it where it used to be. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so that helped us realize, you know, I mean, one of the things you think about with a story like that is, well, in the very beginning, I should have carried it to the trash, moved the trash can the next day, carried it to the trash so that he really is discriminating. It's the right. trash can that is the important piece here. Yes. Yes. You know, we talk a lot about relevant information, right? You know, taking the test, looking at the test questions and how kids with autism have a hard time with relevant information, you know, really highlighting it. Um, and so, you know, I was talking to one of my graduate students yesterday and was having the same conversation about her assignment um, because she didn't do real well. And, you know, of course they could resubmit and I'll grade it again, but I was telling her, directing her to some information and saying, this is the relevant information, right? The rubric is the relevant information. And, you know, it just kind of reminds me of that story. I know I've told it before about um, the little guy who was in a home-based a home ABA program. And I watched him one day and the, the therapist said, Matt, draw a flower. He drew this beautiful stem and, you know, flower circle with petals on it and leaves and all that. And then I went to the Mother's Day Out program and the teacher was teaching, you know, pre-Kers, um, kids in pre-K, how to do shapes. And she was drawing a circle and a square and a triangle. They all had dry erase boards. And she said, okay, boys and girls, draw a circle. And Matthew just kind of scribbled. And I said to the therapist, that's weird. I saw him draw a flower at home yesterday. And the therapist said, well, it's not under stimulus control. And I thought to myself, well, it needs to be right. Otherwise, 
it's not a functional skill. It's not general. It's, it's not generalized. And that's kind of reminds me if your little guy, you know, he, <laughs> he was doing what he was supposed to do. It's just the relevant information, the trash can, not the location. So I love that. That's a good lesson for us as adults of, you know, how to teach. Right. Think from the beginning, what are the pieces here? If we were doing a teach training, we might highlight the circle around the top of the trash can, you know, or we might put a a picture of the the tray that needs to go in there, or we might even put a tray on it. So he really gets the idea. This is where the tray goes. A similar situation. We were doing a training and the teacher, the student was really wanting to learn to read. So the teacher had prepared some activities for the little guy to learn to read. And as you know, she would present ball and he, she would say ball and he would match the picture and he would say ball and cup and all of that. Well, when she got to the picture of boy, just as she was handing him the card that said boy, someone said my name, <laughs> sissy. So he believed that picture of a boy was sissy. <laughs> and, and there was no convincing him. The teacher put it up, brought it back out. Again, it was a one trial learn for him. He had it and he didn't want it changed. We had to put that work away, brought in words in another way, brought in different pictures for boy with the word boy so he could practice boy in another way and probably didn't even bring that task back out for a very long time until he really had a good, clear understanding that he was learning to read. But, you know, he was, you said it, that must be what it is. And it's something we have to think about when we're working with kids. And part of why we don't have 17 people talking to a kid at one time, right? Right. You know, especially for our kids on the spectrum who struggle with trying to find the relevant information. If random pieces of information are flying around, they might mess up. And so not all of them. I mean, a general ed classroom is going to have random information and a lot of kids with autism can sit in a gen ed classroom and do just fine. It depends on the student. He needed his first trials to be right because he was one of those kids. He was a very bright little fella. He struggled with communication. He struggled with socialization, but when you could present information to him correctly, he was going to get it very quickly. Yes. So uh, that, that was one of the things that we took away with him. Yeah. And, you know, it goes back to the whole procedure of using errorless teaching, right? We don't allow them to make an error, right? So we present a a picture of boy only and say, this is boy. What is this boy? Right? So it's a really good strategy to use when you're teaching new skills is we just don't allow errors. And so we make it so that they're going to get it right the first time with prompting if necessary. It kind of reminds me kind of the opposite of a little guy that I was observing this past month or two ago. And I was doing a little FBA, an FBA on the student um, that the parents had requested. And one of the things that he did, and, you know, this little guy's in kindergarten. And at the time he was in kindergarten and he had about an hour a day in a special classroom. And I've gotten an update from the IEP team since then. And he's in gen ed all day. He's really cool kid kindergarten. He wants to be like the other boys and girls so bad. I've never seen a kid on the spectrum who wants to be like his classmates as much as this little guy does. Like he will wear a mask. He will keep his mask on. He will do everything that they do. And he's super smart. 
But one of the things that kind of goes along with your story is that, you know, his parents send snacks every day and he has snack with his general ed kid friends, classic classmates. And he opens his bag of goldfish or whatever it may be. And then he sits and he doesn't eat it because he's kind of a finicky eater. And then when teacher says, okay, boys and girls, if you finish with your snack, go throw it away. And my little guy, Sydney gets up, walks to the trash can, just like the other kids and throws away a brand new open bag of treats. Right. And so I guess that's kind of a behavior that is, um, too much under stimulus control, would you say? How would you describe that? Well, yeah, or you could also think of it in terms of that snack time is is a stimulus to be discriminated. It yes. has many facets to yes. it. And one of the pieces is you eat what you open <laughs> or most of what you open. <laughs> if you're not going to eat it, you don't need to open it. it you know, we don't, that whole food waste thing can really cause a lot of people to get upset, but you might open it if you want a kid to taste and they may not have to eat the whole thing, but they're going to taste it. He, he just, his understanding of what snack is, is sit with your friends, open your food, throw stuff away. Not that food part. Yeah. He missed the, the food part. Yeah. This little guy, he's so cute. He was, I was observing him in the back of a art class and the teacher was doing an art project online and it was, um, and he was kind of far back. And we questioned about his vision and had soon found out afterward that he did need glasses. And so he, I don't think he could see what the teacher was doing. And so I just said, um, Sydney, look at what your neighbor's doing. And that little guy, he looked at her work and she was real sweet. She would share it and say, look here. And he worked and he persisted and he did exactly what his little friend did. It was just such a cute little guy. He's going to be such a success story. Well, and you think about that and you think about, thank goodness, that you or someone said, I wonder if there's something wrong with his hearing. I mean, his vision, because that you could have just thought he was not able, not compliant, not whatever, but because someone picked up on it, you use the information that you had to help him. Like, look at your friend, do what your friend is doing. That's a big part of our job all the time, whether it's a child on the spectrum or not is yeah, what's happening here? Is there any logical explanation for why he's not doing the work when I'm pretty sure he has the ability to do the work? Yep. So, you know, he's funny too. He, he follows all directions. And so he walked into that class and the, te- the para or the teacher said, here, sit here. And so he sat where they told him and the desk was like way too big and he, the chair was way too small. And so he had his little chin looking up over the desk and I went over and I said, here, use this chair. And he looked at me like, what are you doing? Why are you changing my location? And I said, this one's taller for the table. And then I kind of started to take his materials and he took his materials and went over and put them on the right size chair. Um, But, you know, he just did what the teacher told him. And most kids would go, this is too short. But he, he did what she told him to do. So really, really cool kid. So kids can be non-compliant, yes. but they can be overly compliant and yes. advocate for themselves and be able to say, this isn't working for me. And that, you know, that does go along with a lot of the things that happen with our kids on the spectrum. They don't necessarily, they don't know how to advocate, particularly verbally to say, if they say they want something to eat and they're just sitting at the table waiting for someone to yeah. ask them what they want, they may sit there for hours versus 
a typical kid who is going to sit there for a couple minutes yeah. and then say, Hey mom, I'm, I'm here for breakfast. Where's breakfast? This little guy too. He, you know, really didn't have any behaviors to functionally assess. Um, so, um, but one behavior that had, they had been struggling with, but again, he was, well, I don't even know if I said this, he hadn't been in school very long at all. And one of the behaviors that they mentioned was that he refused to transition from recess. And they said, you know, we were using M&Ms and that was helping him with all transitions, but transitioning from recess still, you know, M&Ms don't work. And I was like, well, I don't think we need to do an FBA on that. It's pretty clear. The function is to obtain more recess, right? So, you know, because I had observed him and, and I saw how he, you know, interacted with his peers that day, same thing. Teacher says, line up and he's not, he's up on the jungle gym. And so I said, go get a peer to tell him. And sure enough, a little boy went over and said, Sydney, come on. And sure enough, boom, he was in line doing exactly what he needed to do. And so um, I report that, you know, use those peers, use those peers, use those peers, use those peer models. Cause he's got imitation in his repertoire. Yeah. And he wants to imitate. Yeah. Yeah. You ask yourself, I mean, you're asking yourself, what do I know about this kiddo? I know that he wants to be like the other kids. Let me use the other kids. And sometimes it's easy to forget that in the day to day when you're struggling as a teacher, just trying to get all those 22 yeah. children together and get them. You know, and teachers will say things like, and I know they've said it to you too, like, I can't believe I didn't think of that. Or, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that? And it goes back to you're in the trenches. You've got 22 kids. You are thinking constantly on your feet to try to figure out what all 22 kids need. And so sometimes those really obvious things don't come to you as a classroom teacher or a special education general ed teacher or special education teacher because you're in the trenches. So you sometimes just need a set of fresh eyes, you know, to come in. It's not like I sprinkled magic dust over him. I just had been watching him and only him all day. So. Anyway, um, well, those are two good, some, so there's some good stories about discriminative stimuli. Well, one other thing to talk about, because we've seen this so many times, particularly for kids on the spectrum, is if I use colored blocks to teach a child their colors, but I don't pull in other things of color, totally. you know, the red apple, the red stop sign, the red fire truck, all of those, and they don't. They can't identify their colors outside those blocks. They don't really right. have their colors yet. That's exactly right. It's really not a functional skill until it's demonstrated across three sets of materials, three people, three settings, and even three different cues. Um, yeah, we see that a lot. I see that a lot in classrooms where he's so smart. Look at it. He knows all his colors and it's the blocks. And then I bring in, you know, a truck and a car and say touch green and they have no idea what I'm talking about. Right. right. So, yeah, it's, we need to teach through those levels of learning so that the child's going to be independent and not dependent on certain stimuli to give a response. Yeah. They don't really, they have not discriminated the stimulus yet. If you're talking about color, you know, if, if you put the car in a truck out and you say, give me the truck and he gives you the truck, well, he's got truck, but he doesn't necessarily have the color yet. Exactly. All the things that we're constantly thinking about for our kiddos. So yeah, do you have a test question? I do. So gradually transferring stimulus control from prompts to other discriminative stimuli is a process called A, fading, B, maintenance, C, modeling, or D, shaping. 
So shaping isn't what's being represented here because shaping is reinforcing approximations of the behavior, right? So a good example of shaping is when you and I with that little boy who didn't want to work with the group and he had access to his reinforcers sitting back away from the group and then for a couple of minutes and then we would move his death, his chair a few inches closer. He'd have his reinforcers move it a little bit closer and eventually at the end of that day or the end of that session or observation, he was sitting with his group. So that's a good shaping. Yeah, and another shaping would be as far as drawing goes could be you wanting to draw a square and at first, it really is just a blob on the paper. And you're taking that because you're happy he's holding a pencil. You know, you're reinforcing the fact that he tried. Sure. And then his lines get a little straighter, mm-hmm. although his corners are not that great, until finally the child is able to draw a square. You are reinforcing closer and closer approximations to that square. So that would be shaping. And that's not what we said. Gradually transferring stimulus control from prompts to other discriminative stimuli. Okay, so it's not that. And modeling is demonstrating. Yeah, that's what my little guy, Sidney, was doing. He was using the peers as his model to imitate, right? And so we're really not talking about that here. Maintenance is um, the ability to perform a skill or behavior over time in the absence of teaching, right? So we don't have to reinforce and prompt anymore because the skill has been maintained. And that's why we do maintenance probes to make sure he can still wash his hands independently and still, you know, go to the bathroom and drink from a cup and all of those things. So that's really not maintenance. So it has to be fading, fading, hey, fading. But I can see why if it were the test, if I was taking the test and getting nervous, I might say, well, shaping is a gradual process. So maybe it's shaping. Right. Um, maintenance means he's, he's taken, you know, he has stimulus control. You know, so, but yeah, if you're thinking about what fading does is you're gradually transferring stimulus control from prompts to other discriminative stimuli, that is fading. If you know your definitions, that will be helpful if you're taking the test. Absolutely. Well, I love those stories that we told today. You guys, thank you for listening. And as always, if you have any comments about this episode, please rate and review on the podcast app that you're using. We will talk with you or talk at you (laughs) super soon. Hope you have a great weekend. Bye. Thanks. Bye.